0: with our missionaries, uh, not only this week, uh, but moving forward, is going to be so important to me as I seek to lead the IMB, uh, because there's a lot of missionaries know that I don't know, that I can't know, I won't know, unless I have the opportunity to hear from them. Really the main uh, reason that I wanted to be here uh, was to encourage our missionaries, to let them know uh, that uh, I'm here to serve them, that that's the reason. I feel the Lord has placed me in this role, to uh, listen to them as they shared the the victories and the successes and their excitement about the work, uh, but also to hear them as they talked about those struggles and challenges uh, and to hear their own testimonies. It's it's not easy work out here, whether they're here for a year, uh, two years, or or some of our personnel here have been here for 20 plus years. Just the way God is working uh, and to be able to see that here uh, firsthand has been a tremendous encouragement to me. that Also had the privilege of bringing uh, some of my family members with me this week. Uh, my wife, one of our daughters accompanied me and, and that was uh, important as well. I want them to know what the Lord is doing around the world. I want them to know what we are a part of as a family. And they need to understand uh, the work because many of them are, uh, are families serving together on the field and doing so uh, with, uh, with a smile on their face, with a great commitment to representing the Lord Jesus well. It was also great to hear the testimonies of those they're working with. I, uh, had the opportunity to meet uh, to many people who have been won to the Lord by our missionaries and who are now being trained and equipped uh, to serve. God bless you
1: and we are happy to see you together in Christ Jesus.
0: Some of the testimonies, particularly uh, from the refugee camps, we're heart-wrenching uh, to, to see children living at an orphanage there. Our missionaries are ministering to them. But to know that many of those children made their way from the war torn lands, and some of them unaccompanied by adults making their way across the border and now finding themselves in, in refugee camps with no one really for them until uh, they met believers in those camps, and until uh, they met our missionaries ministering in those camps, AND NOW TO SEE THE HOPE THAT THOSE CHILDREN HAVE. Uh, EVEN uh, THOUGH THEY HAVE SUFFERED HORRIFIC HARDSHIPS AND EVEN THOUGH THEY LIVE IN DESTITUTE POVERTY, THEY HAVE FOUND A CAPACITY TO FORGIVE. THEY HAVE FOUND JOY IN THEIR LIVES. THERE'S A a SMILE ON THEIR FACES. THERE'S HAPPINESS. WE'RE SEEING uh, PEOPLE BEING REACHED. WE'RE SEEING uh, PEOPLE BEING DISCIPLED. AND WE'RE SEEING CHURCHES BEING PLANTED. WE'RE SEEING DARKNESS BEING PUSHED BACK, uh, LOSTNESS BEING OVERCOME WITH THE TRUTH OF THE GOSPEL and so to be here with them, to travel the dusty roads and the city streets with them was a good chance for me to to better understand how we can support them Uh, and to know that they need a place to live and they need a truck to drive to do their work and that's been provided through the generous giving of Southern Baptists. Uh, Able to be reminded of how vital that support is to the work that's taking place all around the world. We had the chance to uh, to walk alongside of them. Uh, It'll change, uh, I think, in in a very positive way how I approach this job.
1: December is not only a a wonderful time to remember the gift that Christ has given to, or God has given to us in Jesus Christ, but it's also uh, a time that we as Baptists remember the responsibility we have to share that gift with others. And there are many ways that we do that here at Central Park, but one of the ways that we do that is through our partnership with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And we set aside, like other churches, the month of December to remember international missions and to remember the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. Many of you already faithfully give to our harvest offering every year and are doing so, and 20% of what you give to the harvest offering is forwarded every year specifically to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering this year. We will write a check at the end of this year for about 22 dollars to $23,000 that was given through the harvest offering, not including the extra gifts that God's people give during this month. So there are um, Lottie Moon Christmas offering envelopes in the pew racks in front of you. If you have not given a gift to the harvest offering this year and you would like to help support the work of international missions through the International Mission Board, you can write a check and place it in in that envelope and put it in the offering plate, and we will take that and forward that along with the gifts that we've already collected. That man that you saw in the video is Dr. Paul Chitwood, who's the new president of the International Mission Board, doing a fantastic job. One of the things that I am very proud of is that most of that video that you saw was taken in northern Uganda. Uh, About a month after Paul came on as the president of of the International Mission Board, he took a trip to Africa, specifically to northern Uganda, and and was working with some of our our, our IMB missionaries there. And we work alongside of some of those through Four Corners Ministries that I'm a part of. And so those refugee camps that he was visiting, that he was talking about, are the same refugee camps that we as a ministry at Four Corners have identified about 20 pastors in those refugee camps that we're training to be church planters. Um, so we are privileged as a, as a ministry organization to work in cooperation with the International Mission Board to push back lostness there in those refugee villages. 1.5 to 2 million refugees that have been displaced from their home, most of them in South Sudan, that are living in those camps. And we believe God has sovereignly given us an opportunity to share the gospel there and to plant gospel-centered churches. So thank you for your prayers and for your support. If you feel led to help give to the International Mission Board, you can do that today. On the inside rows here, so if you're sitting on the inside rows, right next to you are some cards, some invite cards. We need you to pick up that, take a couple of those, pass them down the road. We need everybody to take at least two cards with you today if you can. These are invite cards for you to take and to find someone, maybe a co-worker, friend, neighbor, family member, somebody in your life that you can say, hey, we would love for you to come and join us for Christmas at Central Park. So that's what these cards are about. They have our logo for our Christmas series, Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room, on the front of it. And on the back of it, it has some information there about our Sunday morning worship services, about our adult musical tonight that we would love for you to invite them to tonight. And then also some information about our Christmas Eve service, which will be taking place on the 24th at 5 p.m. So take those with you. Find someone that you can give those to. Um, if you decide to leave them as, a, as an invite on your uh, table today for your waitress, just make sure that you put a generous tip along with that, please. Um, don't skimp on the tip and then give them an invite to church. Please give them double what you would normally give if you're going to do that and, uh, and invite them to come to church and be with us if you could. All right. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to John chapter 1, as we talk this morning about the God who became flesh and dwelt among us. I still remember the day that I got the call that kind of changed my life. Um, I remember where I was. I remember what I was doing just prior to answering the phone. That morning, my wife had a doctor's appointment with her OBGYN, And she and I were preparing to go to that appointment when I got a phone call earlier that had said that one of my college students had been involved in an automobile accident on his way back to school and was being airlifted to the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And so I said to Allison that I needed to go take care of that. We had uh, some of our pastoral staff were out of town that week. I was the only pastoral staff that was in the office So I left and went up there. I was sitting in the hospital room at UAB in the emergency room with with a lady whose son was in another room. We weren't really sure about what his overall condition was going to be. He was stable at that time. And as I was sitting there, my phone rang. It was a number I didn't recognize. I answered the phone, and when I answered the phone, the voice on the other end said, Hi, my name is, I don't even remember her name. She said, Hi, my name is, and I am Dr. Simmons' nurse, and there's been a problem. We need you to come to the office. And at that particular moment, everything in my life changed. See, in the, in the couple of days leading up to that event, my wife and I were expecting our first child. We'd been married just a little over a year. We were eagerly anticipating uh, the birth of a child. She was around 10 to 12 weeks pregnant uh, in the weeks leading up to that. and she began to feel like something wasn't quite right. I had no filter by which to understand that. Uh, I was a, 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 I'm a man, number one. Number two, I was a newlywed and, and, and had no idea of what that meant or what that felt like. And said to her, don't worry about it, everything's fine. And, and sent my wife to the doctor's office by herself that day. And then got the phone call that we had lost the baby. And I got in my car, left a, a mother who said, absolutely, go be with your wife. Left a mother who was waiting to see what was going to happen with her son. And got in, a, got in my car and drove down Interstate 65 as fast as I could. And while I was driving, I was just praying, God, give me a word. Give me a word. What do you say in that moment? You know, I, I've, I've made a living trying to be able to have comfort from God's Word to give to people during times of grief. But, but at that time, I was just a youth guy. I was a youth minister. I had no real experience with that. Uh, I had no filter by which to do that. And I was dealing with my own personal grief and, and, and worry and fear and, and, and figuring out what in the world am I going to say to my wife during this time. And what I needed in that moment more than anything else was a word from God. What I needed in that moment was the comfort that only the Lord Jesus Christ can bring. And what I needed was the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to flood into the chaos of the rising waters that were coming around me and my wife. In that moment, what I didn't need was a God who was impersonal or distant or separated from me in the pain that I was experiencing. I needed a God at that moment who understood my world, who had experienced my pain, and who knew how to help me and my wife navigate through this valley. That is why you and I need John chapter 1. That is why we need what theologians have termed The incarnation. You see, most of the time we don't associate John chapter 1 as a Christmas passage because there's no mention of Mary and Joseph, there's no no mention of shepherds or wise men. And so most of us would not see this to be a typical Christmas passage, but John chapter 1 is absolutely a Christmas passage because Christmas is about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and Christmas is about celebrating. When God came down to take on flesh and dwell among us. As you listen to the Christmas songs on your radio, one that you will hear over and over and over again this holiday season was made famous by Andy Williams who said that this is the what? The most wonderful time of the year, right? And for the Christian, that statement should be absolutely abundantly true. But for many of us, Christmas is... Is wonderful for all the wrong reasons. You see, most of us have lost our worship and our wonder when it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ, and in its stead, we find wonder in all the trappings and the sentimentality of the Christmas season, without ever really grasping what we often refer to as the meaning of the season. Right? We'll say Jesus is the reason for the season. We'll. We'll, we'll put mangers scenes in our living room and on our front yard. But for many of us, that's about as far as we reflect about the coming of Jesus Christ because there's too much else to do. There's presents to buy. There's parties to attend. There's all kinds of stuff that, that we have to be busy with. And I think the problem is what often has been called the danger of familiarity. The problem is that the Christmas story for most of us have has just become too familiar, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time like me. been a believer for over 30 years. And the problem is the longer you're a Christian, the more the old, old story of Christmas as the birth of God's Son becomes a story that we are all too familiar with. And so instead of worshiping in wonder, we settle for empty religious platitudes and spiritual-sounding phrases that we throw out that have very little to do with wonder, very little to do with worship, and very little to do with what we as Christians are supposed to be drawn to during the Christmas season. Paul Tripp, who's one of my favorite authors, said it this way about familiarity. He said, Familiarity often does bad things to us. Often when we become familiar with things, we begin to take them for granted. When we are familiar with things, we tend to quit examining them. Often when we are familiar with things, we quit noticing them. When we are familiar with things, we tend not to celebrate them as we once did. Familiarity tends to rob us of wonder. And here's what's important about it. What has captured the wonder of our hearts will control the way we live. What captures the wonder of our hearts controls the way we live. And so I want us to think about that as we go to these verses in John chapter 1 because my prayer this morning is that as we examine God's Word that we would recapture the wonder and the awe and the worship of these verses that the Holy Spirit intended when He gave them to us. Let's don't just read over them again like we do most of the time when we come to a passage in our Bible reading plan and we read over them and we check the box and we move on from them, but think for a second about what John Is writing and listen to the wonder of these verses. So, if you got a copy of God's Word, look with me at John chapter 1. I'm going to read through this. John starts with the words in the beginning. Now, this is important because it attaches what John is saying here in John chapter 1 with what the Holy Spirit wrote in Genesis chapter 1, because the first three verses of the words of Genesis are what? In the beginning. So, John's connecting us all the way back to before there was a beginning. And dwelt among us. Just pause there for a second. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. Because what John says there is something that is totally unimaginable to the first century Jewish and Greek mindset. John says that this all-powerful divine Word, who was with God and who was God Himself, that this Word, this eternal existent being who dwelt in eternity in heaven became flesh. The God of the universe took upon Himself the cause of humanity and chose to become one of us. And theologians have called this incredible moment incarnation, which is a big theological word that very many people have heard of, but very few people actually understand. The word incarnation simply means this, the act whereby the eternal Son of God took upon Himself a human nature. The act by which the eternal Son of God took upon Himself a human nature. God Almighty becoming as you and me. And yet so many, for so many of us, we have become so familiar with the facts of John chapter 1 and the facts of the Christmas story... That we often read by passages like John 1.14 and the foundational truths of them just fly by us. The worship of that verse flies by us. To me, I think I could do nothing more today than just simply come in here and say, I want you to think about this phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that for a second. And if you stop from all of the busyness and the chaos and the bustle and all of the mental energy that we expend on the things that absolutely do not matter in life, if you will stop for that for a few minutes to simply contemplate this phrase, I don't see how you can do anything other than worship God because of. it. John's point here in his prologue is to establish two very critical truths for us that are foundational to explain everything else that he's about to explain in the gospel. These two foundational truths are in your, are in your notes this morning, and they are simply this. Number one, Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. He is the eternal word of God. That's what he establishes in the first four verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, Jesus Christ may have existed as a carpenter's son from Nazareth, but long before that, he existed eternally in heaven. Jesus Christ is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the primary agent of creation according to John chapter 1. And John wants us to feel the weight of that for a second, that this man that he's about to explain over the next 21 chapters in his book, that this man is fully God. But not only is he fully God, but he is also fully man. Jesus Christ is fully God and Jesus Christ is fully Man. He is fully human. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on our flesh and entered our world. God Himself has taken on the reality of humanity and become one of us. And the sinless Son of God, who has existed in perfect e- fellowship in the Godhead for all eternity, interrupted the course of humanity by choosing to become one of us. God placed him in the womb of a young virgin. He was born through the normal process of humanity. He was raised in a normal human home like us, experiencing everything that you and I experience. The Word, God, became flesh. He became fully man. But not only did He become fully man, but the Bible says He he dwelt among us. What does that mean? It's interesting, the word used here for dwelt is the same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament version. It's the same word that that those who translated the Septuagint from Hebrew to Greek used for the word tabernacle. Do You remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament? The tabernacle represented the presence of God among His people. So as they were wandering through the wilderness before they were able to have a temple and when they when they when they were trying to establish that God dwelt among his people they 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 set this tent up in the center of camp and God's presence would reside in that tent and everything in the camp was centered around the tabernacle all of the tribes camped out from the center of the tabernacle and Moses would go into the tabernacle to meet with God and when he would, the people would see him go in there and they knew he's going to meet with God and then he would come out and he would explain what God had for his people. The tabernacle represented the dwelling of God with his people and John uses that very same word in John chapter 1 to say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. He came to live in our world. Eugene Peterson, in his, in his paraphrase, The Message says, The Word took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus Christ became for us the new tabernacle of God. And this time in Jesus Christ, God did not dwell in a tent behind a curtain where no one was allowed to enter, but this time God dwelt in and among His people in a very powerful, real, and tangible way. And so I want us to think about what this means for the word to become flesh and dwell among us. And I want to give you four truths that I see from this text that I think make a difference in your life and my life. That we can say because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, these things are true. The first of those is this. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we worship a God who took the initiative to solve our sin problem. We worship a God who took the initiative to solve our sin problem. Most of us were raised up as people who were raised to take the initiative to solve your own problems, right? You need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't wait on someone else to fix your problems for you. You need to take care of your own problems. But one of the most astonishing truths that jumps off the page of John chapter 1, verse 14 is the fact that this almighty, sovereign, life-giving Word of God did not wait for us to do what we could not do to try to reach Him, He took the initiative to come to us. This is the beauty of what the Incarnation is all about. An eternal, sovereign, holy God who takes the initiative to redeem sinful, fallen, and rebellious people when they could not do anything in and of themselves to accomplish their own redemption. When we feel the weight of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, it's a reminder to us that God had to take it upon himself to solve the problem, the most important problem, the one problem that you and I can't fix because of our own work or our own effort. You see, even though God's people had God's law in the Old Testament, when we read the Old Testament, we see that even though they had literally the words of God in front of them, given from the mouth of God to the servant of God Himself, they still didn't keep it. And the reason for it is because knowing the law does not motivate obedience. Knowing the law only exposes us to the reality of our disobedience. Knowing what God, word, what God requires of us and what God's Word says does not motivate us to keep it. It only exposes to us our inability to do so. And so God, in His mercy, gave them a way to deal with the guilt and the reality of their sin by providing a sacrificial system to temporarily atone for the guilt of their sins. We know this as as the sacrifices. God made clear in His Word that the price of sin required an atonement of blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. And so in the Old Testament, God instituted a system whereby the shedding of blood through an animal sacrifice would provide temporary atonement for the guilt of our sin. But the problem with the sacrifices were they were only temporary. They could not provide permanent forgiveness and redemption because God never intended the sacrificial system to be the ultimate and final way to deal with the sin problem because the sacrifices could not provide perfect forgiveness. You see, God wants us to understand that we cannot save ourselves through empty religious rituals or good works. We cannot atone for our sins through our own personal efforts. Aren't you glad this morning that in order to experience forgiveness, you're not required to come in here and sacrifice an animal on this, on this stage this morning? God's ultimate plan required the complete redemption of His people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And to accomplish this plan, God needed to send a perfect, completely innocent sacrifice, free from all sin and corruption, to pay sin's penalty once for all. And this could only be accomplished by the sending of His Son. But it wasn't just enough for God to send His Son in perfect deity. It wasn't just enough for Jesus to come as 100% God and to to come down and to say, this is what's going to happen. God also required that His Son must experience complete humanity in order to atone for our sins. The complete innocence of Jesus required that He would have to face fully every single temptation that you and I do. Because otherwise, a sacrifice that doesn't understand our temptation and our struggles can't really atone for our sins that we give in to those temptations and struggles. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You know what that means? That means there's not one temptation that you face that Jesus Christ hasn't faced the reality of that temptation. There's not one time that you lose your temper that Jesus Christ doesn't understand what it's like to be tempted to lose his temper. There's not one time that you you harbor an impure thought in your mind that Jesus Christ wasn't tempted to harbor those same kinds of thoughts. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet he never succumbed to the temptation. And so as such, when he went to the cross, he went as a pure innocent, sinless sacrifice to pay for the atonement of God's people once and for all. You see, what Christmas tells us is that we do not have a God who doesn't understand our sin problem. We have a God who fully understands it and he took the initiative to solve our sin problem. The second truth, though, is that because... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Our hearts can finally behold the greater glory for which they were designed. Our hearts can finally behold the greater glory for which they were designed. John chapter 14, John tells us that not only did God become flesh and dwelt among us, but look at the second part of that verse. It says, We have seen His glory. We have beheld His glory. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. Why is this important? This is important because you and I are hardwired to seek glory in our life. We're hardwired to seek things of beauty and wonder and worship and value. It's the way we're wired. The problem is that we are glory seekers who seek glory in all the wrong places. Do you remember what the Bible says in Romans 3.23? The Bible says all have sinned, but it doesn't just say all have sinned. It says all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. What does that mean? That means that we are wired to seek God and to give Him glory and worth and value, but because of our sin, we fall short of that. We stop. We, We don't do what we're supposed to do in seeing and beholding and worshiping the glory of God. As a matter of fact... The Bible tells us even worse than that. It doesn't even say that we fell short of the glory of God. The Bible says that we exchanged the glory of God like a bad Christmas sweater. (laughs) Romans chapter 1 says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and animals and creeping things. What does that mean? That means every single person on this planet has been given the glory of God to behold, and yet we have chosen our own path and we have said, no, thank you, God, I really don't want that. What I want is the glory of this. But that's not the glory that we were created to seek. You and I were created with an internal compass that is wired to give worth and glory and praise to something greater and bigger than ourselves. It shows up in our fascination with our sports teams. It shows up in our love for the majesty of the ocean or the breathtaking views of the mountains. It shows up in the glory that we give simple celebrities who can act or sing. It shows up in the amount of money that we will spend to go and be entertained by epic movies. All of those are examples of the way that we seek glory. And yet while we are created to seek glory in God, the Bible says that you and I have exchanged the greatest possession in all creation, the glory of God, for worthless trinkets that cannot satisfy us. How many of you remember the old game, Let's Make a Deal, with Monty Hall? You remember that? Some of you that are probably under 30 have no idea what we're talking about, but most of you will remember the game, Let's Make a Deal. And one of the things that we loved about that show was because in that show, you know people dressed up and did all these crazy things and they were selected and when they were selected they were automatically given something right they were given a prize so here's what we're going to do today we're going to give you this and we're going to give you this uh, nice little uh, uh, coffee maker and tea set okay and it's worth $55 now you can take this coffee maker and tea set home with you today or you can exchange it for what's behind door number 1 right and most of the time, people would say, well, that's a really nice coffee maker and tea set, and I could use it, but I don't know what's well, behind door number one. So it you know, might be a new car. might be a vacation to the Bahamas. might be a mule. You don't know, right? And we all loved it because what we really wanted was we wanted it to be the mule, right? Because we're all selfish, and we don't want somebody else to get a better deal than we do. So don't, I, be honest now. You got more joy when that door opened up and it was a mule standing behind it than you did when it was a car, right? Because I would go, yes, right? But that's what happens. You and I are given the greatest treasure in all creation, the glory of God, and we exchange it just like making a bad deal on let's make a deal. And the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that what God says here in John chapter 1 is that Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us so that once again we could see God's glory. The glory of the only Son from the Father. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he said, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know how to see God's glory? You see it through Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we don't have to give our worship and glory to things that fade or rust or decay. Because in Christ, we can now give our glory and wonder to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the third thing that is true is that because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we receive the gift of abundant and extravagant grace. We receive the gift of abundant and extravagant grace. One of the things that most people enjoy the most about Christmas is the giving of gifts. Now, for some of you in here, gift-giving and gift-buying are incredibly stressful. Does anybody get stressed out over giving gifts at Christmas? Anybody want to to admit to that? A few of you? Okay. For a lot of people in here, it's just a stressful thing. What am I going to get? I don't know what to get. What am I going to do? I got to order it now because if I don't order it, it's not going to come in time. And what if they don't like it? And what if it don't fit? And, And it becomes a very stressful process. For others, that just energizes you, giving gifts to people. I mean, it's just fun to go shopping and to buy things to give to people because you enjoy giving gifts. And I think that this this need that we feel at Christmas to give gifts to people is more than just commercialization in our culture. Because as Christians celebrated Christmas for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the advent of shopping malls and Amazon... Even back then, they would exchange gifts with one another during this time. They weren't weren't these extravagant hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of presents. They were usually small things, but they would give gifts to one another because in the Christmas story, we read about God's gift to us. And part of the worship and the wonder of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ is to understand that we've been given a tremendous gift And as a reflection of that, we want to give things from others. Look at verse 16 when it says, From His fullness we have all received what? Grace upon grace. The gift that we have been given is grace. Now the word received here denotes three things. In order for something to be received, three things must be true. There must be something given, there must be a giver, and there must be a recipient. All three of those things must exist in order for someone to receive something. And what John is describing for us here is an act where God Himself in Jesus Christ has given you and me a very precious gift, the gift of His grace. We have all received grace. Grace is best defined as the unmerited favor of God. And it's the act by which God chooses to be favored towards us Not because of what we have done to deserve it, but in spite of what you and I have done to deserve his favor. One of the things that makes gifts so powerful in our life is that most of the time we didn't do anything to deserve it, right? Have you ever gotten a gift from somebody that was so extravagant that all you could do was say, wow. Thank you. You were speechless. You didn't know what to do. And it was because you recognized you didn't deserve at that moment to receive what they gave you. That's exactly what John is saying here in John chapter 1, verse 16. From His fullness, from the fullness of Christ, we, as God's people, have all received grace. And not just grace, but grace upon grace. Abundant extravagant, overwhelming, overflowing, never-ceasing grace from God. Grace doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Grace has treated Christ as our sins deserve so that you and I can be treated like we do not deserve. And because the nature of grace is a gift, it means that you and I have done absolutely nothing to deserve it. Nothing. Paul said in Ephesians, we are saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your work so that no man can boast. Oftentimes at Christmas we'll hear advertisers proclaim that their product is the gift that keeps on giving, right? But there's only one person that that applies to and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only gift that keeps on giving and never runs dry. So because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we have received the gift of abundant and extravagant grace. But finally we see that because of that, we can now be reconciled with our eternal heavenly Father. I've read John chapter 1 many times, and most of the time I never stop and read verse 18. I skip over it. And then I read it several years ago, and I recognize that John's telling us something very important here. It says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God. No one has seen God. You haven't haven't been able to dwell and behold God, who is an eternal, omniscient, uh, transcendent, holy being. You've never really seen God. No one has seen God. Even Moses himself, who met with God, never truly saw God. He He just saw part of God's glory with his own eyes. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known to us. This introduces us to one of the most weighty implications of the Incarnation. And that is this, because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, you and I can now behold the Heavenly Father from whom we have been estranged for most of our lives. The Bible says that you and I are sinners, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that our sin has separated us from Him. That sin in our lives causes a relational discord and division between us and God. Rewind for a second back to Genesis chapter 2 and and remember what happened when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. What did they do? When they sinned and they took of the fruit and they ate of the fruit, did they immediately run to God and say, God, we're sorry, we shouldn't have done this. Did they do that? What did the Bible say they did? They went and they hid themselves. They hid themselves and they sewed together fig leaves to try to cover up their shame and their guilt and their nakedness because that's what sin does. It causes discord, disconnect between us and God. And all of us have lived with this relational disconnection between God ever since Adam and Eve. We have a glorious, benevolent Father in heaven, but we cannot see Him or know Him in the relational intimacy that we were created for because of the sin of our hearts. Our sin has blinded us from seeing our Father. But John tells us that because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Christ has made the invisible God visible. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. To look upon Jesus Christ is to see God the Father. And Jesus came to show us that God is not just a powerful God who is transcendent over us and distant from us. He is also a loving, benevolent Father who has sent his Son to be the sacrifice for our sins so that you and I can become sons and daughters of God. Because the Word became flesh, Jesus Christ made it possible to know the God for whom we were created and from whom you and I have been estranged for all of our lives. And Perhaps you've dealt with that some in your life. Maybe you've had some, some difficulty in your family. You've experienced estrangement from a father, a parent, or a child, or a, someone close to you, and you know what that feels like, and, 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 and you, you know what it's like to have a relationship with someone but not to be able to experience what that relationship is. The reality is is that every person on this planet who who is born is born with a sinful nature that estranges us from God. And that if we don't submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in what he's done on the cross for us, that we will live with that estrangement the rest of our lives and we will go into eternity eternally separated from the God who loved us and created us for his glory. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can be fully completely reconciled to your heavenly father because Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us and so today we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ we want the incarnation of Jesus Christ to be more than just a simple truth that we acknowledge we want it to be a reigning reality in our hearts so maybe this morning you're here and you feel that estrangement from God maybe this morning you feel that separation from him Maybe this morning you've never truly experienced that gift of God's grace. And, and maybe you don't sense the love of the Heavenly Father that you were created for, but you want to. In just a moment, we're going to sing a, a song. It's going to be an offer, an invitation for you to respond to the gospel. we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. So if you need to come and be saved this morning, you need to come and, and surrender your life to, to Jesus Christ. We offer you the opportunity to do that. We'll let you talk with one of our counselors and they'll share with you more about what Christ has done for you. But Do not let this day pass by without dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven we thank you so much that we have John chapter 1. I'm very grateful for Luke chapter 2 and all of the incredible things that you tell us in Luke chapter 2 about Bethlehem and the star and the shepherds and the angels. I'm very grateful for Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 where you talked to us about Joseph and Herod but God I'm especially grateful for John chapter 1 that reminds us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth the father may that penetrate our hearts today and make us people who leave here different than when we came and for anyone here today that needs to know you as lord and savior father we pray that you would give them the courage the conviction the boldness to respond in faith today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Sing this song and respond as the Lord leads you.